Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, a prominent Muslim New Yorker wants to know if the NYPD is investigating him. But a court ruling says the police have the right to remain silent. And why Brooklyn's population actually shrank last year. Hi, I'm Brian Vaughn, sitting in for Ashley Ford. Welcome to 112BK on Brick TV, which is not part of the Sinclair Broadcast Group, the nation's largest broadcaster. We are not one of their 193 owned and operated TV stations across the country. So you won't hear Ashley or me or anyone else for that matter who hosts this show saying any of the following. The sharing of biased and false news has become all too common on social media. More alarming, some media outlets publish the same fake stories without checking facts first. The sharing of biased and false, false news has, has become, become all too common, common on, on social, social media. media. More alarming, some media outlets publish the same without checking facts first. Unfortunately, some members of the media use their platforms to push their own personal bias and agenda to control Did you notice anything odd there? Talk about anchor copy. Sinclair, known for its somewhat conservative slant, is already in the habit of making its stations air video segments called must-runs. Apparently, they're now in the business of giving their anchors must-speaks. Now, I ask you. How can all these local news folks expect us to take seriously their warning about fake news emanating from the major mainstream media outlets, even if they don't name names? We know what they mean. When what could feel more fake than dozens of anchors sounding like a bunch of robots who just happen to need hair and makeup? It's like getting your news from Westworld. And that last line, this is extremely dangerous for our democracy. Wow. And Monday morning, Donald Trump tweeted his support for Sinclair. Enough said there. On the show today, and I am the only person you will hear saying this, the Court of Appeals turns down an appeal for information from a Muslim New Yorker and what this means for transparency and the NYPD. Plus, last year, Brooklyn lost... 0.0788% of its population, less than a thousandth. Sounds insignificant, but is it? But first, these things. Now, we'll talk more about this tomorrow, but as of Saturday night, there is a New York State budget deal. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the poor, battered BQE as it passes below Brooklyn Heights and above Brooklyn Bridge Park and how the state legislature could make the urgently needed repairs go faster and cheaper. Assemblymember Joanne Simon told us that while a procurement process called design build is widely accepted as the best way to go, it was being held up in the assembly. But thanks in part to Simon's efforts, the new budget will authorize design build for the project, which means an estimated $113 million will be saved. The renovation could take two years less to complete, and thousands of fewer trucks will bang, bounce, and idle their way through the city streets, something we don't see often enough, a victory for common sense. Turning to pizza now, and is there ever a good time not to turn to pizza? 
We've all heard the claim that it's our New York City water that makes New York City pizza the best. Now a company called New York Water Maker is marketing a device that they say turns any old water into our water. According to a website called Inverse.com, the machine can tweak the water in Pittsburgh or Podunk and give it the same high mineral but low calcium content our pizzerias are blessed with. But the article also quotes at least one expert who says it has more to do with the proportion of oil and sugar typically used in the dough here and uh, not so much with water. Speaking of dough, the Daily News says that delicious contest-winning water of ours is likely to get a lot more expensive. And public advocate Letitia James is not happy about the prospect. The Department of Environmental Protection projects that by 2027, rates could rise by as much as 80 percent, from $1,055 in 2017 to 1900 by 2027 for a single-family home, while a resident in a multifamily unit could watch the water rise from 686 to $1,234. Tish James says, quote, This is neither fair nor sound public policy, and New Yorkers deserve immediate answers. For its part, the DEP says cost-saving efforts could mean rates in 2027 will be much lower than today's estimates. Meanwhile, go enjoy a slice of pizza and a nice cold glass of water. Our first conversation in a moment. In 2011, a groundbreaking report by the Associated Press revealed widespread NYPD surveillance of mosques and other Muslim institutions across New York City. When one of the targets, Imam Talib, a prominent religious leader who runs the Mosque of Islamic Brotherhood in Harlem, requested more info under FOIL, the Freedom of Information Law, the NYPD responded by, quote, neither confirming or denying the existence of records. A tactic known as GLOMAR. Now, we'll explain why in a moment. Talib sued the NYPD, and after more than a five-year court battle, the case was dealt a heavy blow late last week when the state's highest court sided with the police. Here to talk to us more about the case is Omar Mohammadi, the attorney who represents Imam Talib and who's fighting to raise awareness of Glomar and how he feels it's being used by law enforcement to violate the rights of minorities. Now, from 2002 to 2014, he also served as New York City's Human Rights Commissioner. Welcome to 112BK, sir. Thank you very much. So we appreciate Thank you being me. here. And we're going to start with a little bit of background, first of all, on what this GLOMAR is. Right. Uh, GLOMAR is a doctrine that can be used to protect the federal agency from revealing any information that can subject the United States of America to harm. Right. Uh, as far as foreign policy, as far as uh, for any, any issues that can deal with the spying issues. So I'm, you're I'm, talking about federal and foreign policy. To the best of your knowledge, how often do municipalities like a city of New York invoke something like a GLOMAR? 
I mean, Judge Wilson, in his dissent, by the way, the decision by, 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 the, by, by the highest court, the Court of Appeals here, it was a split decision. It right. was four to three. And it was very controversial decision as far as the uh, dissent were very strong in, in, in criticizing the majority rule, where actually Judge Wilson himself stated that uh, uh, the, the, uh, the origin of Glomar does not stem from FOIA, Freedom of Information Act, which is a federal uh, uh, statute, or Freedom of Information Law, which is, well, you know, not even from Freedom of Information Act, let alone Freedom of Information Law, right? It stems from, stem from uh, uh, Act of Congress, right. as well as executive order. From the Therefore, Cold War days. Exactly, Cold War days. So, so there is no way that the city or state agency can claim we cannot confirm or deny, mm -hmm. because they have no basis for it to, de to, to say it. Even at the judicial as a judicial doctrine, judicial doctrine was followed based on that, not on the, the um, uh, because FOIA allowed it, therefore FOIA should allow it. That's, that's another question. Question, would FOIA allow it? That's a different story. But again, just to start, which, which is the origin of Glomar? It's not what city agency has, it's not what state agency has. And, and city council or any state, um, you know, uh, assembly or, or state right. legislatures are not giving that to state or city agencies. Right. So it is a foreign policy, it's a Cold War era doctrine that was, that was used, has been used, actually has been very controversial even at a federal level, let alone a state level. Can you imagine within 50 states, not a single agency has claimed Glomar except the NYPD right. here, so. which, is, which is very problematic. Actually, this is not going to affect our clients. It's going to affect all New Yorkers. So let's get to that point. Right. You, you, you were arguing for the best interest of your clients, in particular the Muslim community at large. But now that the rubber has met the road, in a sense, and the highest court has upheld the right of the NYPD to say, we won't confirm or deny, to essentially plead the fifth, what does that mean for every other everyday New Yorker walking around knowing that our police force has the right to say, we don't have to tell you? That's right. And, and the, the problem is this, and that's what Judge Wilson said, you know, the fact that you're not even allowing the court to even conduct in-camera review to say the, to, to, to make sure the, there is a valid exemption right. where, where the, the, the NYPD, if I like, for... for uh, for public interest or for, for uh, uh, if there is any investigation, for instance, mm -hmm. a law enforcement investigation that is ongoing, then, and therefore, you're allowed to have that information, you are allowed to at least receive information, say, we have it, we cannot give it to you, right? right? By now, under Glomar, which is very controversial, and even under Glomar, under federal, federal uh, level, uh, court have our uneasy with the fact that under Glomar, even the court themselves, they're not going to be able to review the objection and the information to decide if, if this is, is valid or not. It's because Glomar does not even allow an in-camera review. Right. I mean, it will not even, it will prevent the court from doing its jo so job. So the very judges who would be able to review the documents and say if they were to the level that would jeopardize some kind of operation of law enforcement, they're not even allowed to review them to it, make that and determination. And the does not even exist. And that's yeah. actually during the oral argument. You can see even the judges were, were asking questions about how can you, 
how can we do this uh, uh, in-camera review? Right. So you cannot do in-camera review under Glomar. So let's move on to the ramifications of this thing. You were representing two clients specifically, but certainly the New York Police Department has not only surveilled those two clients. Other people filed freedom of information requests. Why is it that you guys were the last people standing in the court? Because we believe in justice, we believe actually Glomar is a very, very controversial doctrine. Yeah. Other, other issues would fall, there will always be other issues, for instance. Mm -hmm. But this is actually, they have, to, to us and to me as a lawyer, I do believe that Glomar actually has, has put full legislation aside. Mm. And has allowed the NYPD now to promote secrecy, where FOIL, Freedom of Information Law, was established to promote, promote open government. Right. And that is the problem that we are dealing with. And that is going to affect all New Yorkers, yeah. is not only our client or the Muslim community. So even with these Freedom of Information Laws and the act that supersedes the Freedom of Information Law, there were some individuals and organizations who decided not to pursue it till its very end and took a settlement from the New York Police Department. So what do you hope to accomplish by taking this to its end? I, I do believe that uh, what was filed before was not a freedom of information uh, a law request. Mm -hmm. It was more uh, a case that was filed on constitutional ground. But now, right. actually, we are thinking this is really a major violation of constitutional rights of our clients. And and tell you, we're not going to stay here and watch this happening. I think, uh, I think uh, those clients... Uh, they are good, upstanding citizens. Mm -hmm. One is an African-American that has been a major civil rights activist, have been really working on behalf of the, the minorities, and there's no way that the, that person will be anyone subject to a terrorist, uh, terrorism investigation. The other person was a student who was spied on, and clearly the NYPD has done that. Now, uh, really, what this is telling us that the NYPD, they can get away with, uh, with abuse of power mm -hmm. on violation of First Amendment rights, people. And that's something that has to be addressed. This is not a criminal activity mm -hmm. that was going on. And, and actually, I take offense with the fact even some language that was issued last week yeah. that as if our client were subject to criminal activity. So why did you lose investigation. Why did you lose? You know, I really think it's the environment. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the environment, and I think even the sending judges said something about this, the, the, uh, the, the environment is allowing this abuse of law enforcement. And look, we're all looking for to protect our country. Everyone is looking. But that's not the way we do it. We don't trump on, on people's civil rights by doing so. Uh, and I think just the fact that people are Muslims does not mean that they are connected to any terrorist activity. So it, it, I just feel like it's a, it's a, a guilt. You're, you're almost guilty mm -hmm. by seeking your rights. And that's something, actually, when I was reading the decision, I was, I was really depressed. I was depressed for not for—I was depressed for, for New Yorkers, what civil rights has gone. You know, there are, are some them? New Yorkers who say safety is paramount. And we all have to all maybe have to. suffer a little bit if our safety is concerned. There are a lot of voices who say, if you don't have anything to hide, who cares who's listening? Right. But, but the problem, I mean, look, safety does not mean that you need to trump on, on civil rights, because you can lose both. You know, and, and I tell you, the NYPT to go and spy on all Muslim, all Muslim uh, uh, community members, that's actually, to me, that's not safety, because you're not targeting 
behavior. How is You're talking the a religion. New York Police Department making New York City less safe by focusing on people like your clients for surveillance? I think I think actually that make it less safe because they are they are using all the resources and necessary resources mm -hmm. to go after people who are upstanding citizens where they can spend those resources going after terror, uh, potential terrorists. So we are still suffering uh, the ramifications of that decision from your side. Is this the end of the line? Are you saying you're going to try something different? If there was an appeal, where would it go? Um, we are considering other aspects. I don't want to say that now. We, we're consulting with our clients. I think we have other avenues where we can go to. It's not going to end. This is not going to end. I think any violation of civil rights has to be dealt with. Um, and that's something that has—and also the principle. It's a major principle we are dealing with. And I think we, there, are, there are a lot of things out there that be able for us to be able to see so more. So before we get out of here, one question. The eyes of the country are watching New York right now in this decision. Do you think that the court's decision has emboldened other municipalities to move forward and commit surveillance without having to say whether they're doing it or not? That, that's for sure. And that's why I think there is a federal question here, a federal question. All right, Mr. Mohammadi, we appreciate you joining Thank us Thank you today. very much. We'll definitely Thank you. Uh, keep watching thanks. the case. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right, thanks. Brooklyn has cachet, class, swagger, you name it. We are a definite destination. We're the city's biggest borough, population-wise, and since 2010, the second-fastest-growing county in the whole state. Only the Bronx outpaced us during that time. But in 2017, for the first time in years, it looks like a bunch of Brooklynites lit out for other destinations. And we actually shrank. Not by a lot, but enough to make some folks stop and scratch their heads and wonder, hey, what happened? One of them is Laura Bliss, a staff writer for The Atlantic Magazine's City Lab and the author of a recent article called Brooklyn is Booming. So why is it shrinking? Laura, welcome to 112BK. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. Absolutely. So your article title just said it all. Brooklyn is growing, but we're shrinking. What's really happening? Right. It's it's complicated, right? I want to point out okay. that this is a nuanced topic. Um, but to tackle the first part of the headline, right, Brooklyn is booming. So we know mm -hmm. that since 2010, the borough has absolutely grown by about 144,000 people. That's 6% growth between 2010 and 2017. Right. And just to be clear, these are based on um, new numbers from the Census Bureau that just came out uh, a couple weeks ago. Clear. Uh, but the shrinking part, right, is interesting. So these numbers were estimates for the year of 2017 uh, at the county level. So we saw um, in the census data that Brooklyn actually declined, uh, according to their numbers, by a little over 2,000 people. Um, so, right, there is potentially a reversal of that trend. Now, right. to be clear, right, this is the first year that we've seen an actual decline. Yeah. There's been a big slowdown over the last several years, mm -hmm. that's for sure. Um, but, you know, I know the city planning department would want me to say yeah. that generally demographers want to look at longer spans, but 
there is this fact. It's hard to believe that people are actually leaving, particularly when you look at a neighborhood like this, where a few years ago they would roll in the sidewalks at like six o'clock, and now you come out and there's people walking dogs and having coffee and walking around and jogging. So are some areas just growing more while others are losing old timers? What do you think that's about? Right. I mean, I think that there are a number of factors that you can point to to explain a potential decline in the population um, and certainly the big slowdown. And I'll, I'll just kind of add some numbers to that, too, right? You know, while the census number—the census does sometimes go back and revise their numbers, so, you know, whether this is just a blip, we don't know for sure. But just to give some context, right, in 2015, um, the borough actually grew by 12,000 people. So, you know, that's still an increase. Uh, yeah. In 20. Uh, 16, right. it grew by 4,000 people. So even there, that's a pretty substantial drop. And then here we are in 2017, looking at 2017, where we have a 2,000-person decline. Um, so to get to your question, right, of like what's driving the slowdown and possible yeah. decline, right? Um, so I think what you're describing, right, are some of the amazing amenities that some of the more gentrified parts of the borough have, right, right. Um, that are sort of this... Um, uh, brand of Brooklyn, like globally even. Um, and it's kind of hard to say, you know, to what extent um, gentrification causes displacement, right, of longer-time residents right. who can potentially no longer afford to live there. But we do know that in some neighborhoods, you know, um, including right near here, right, um, in Bed-Stuy, where I live, in, in um, Crown Heights, uh, certainly in Bushwick, right, yeah. uh, longer-time communities um, are leaving. Yeah. Uh, and that might be for a variety of reasons, inc including rising rents. So speaking of the rising rent piece, we've seen a lot of high-rise developments come on. A lot of them uh, have the sort of luxury moniker. And uh, the developers are insisting, people are coming. We have to have a place to put them. So do these numbers sort of fly in the face of that logic? Yeah, it's a great question, and, and I, you know, don't pretend to be a real estate expert by any means, but I, I was just sort of refreshing myself on some of these numbers, right? Yeah. Um, there is actually a growing concern among developers who are building uh, new uh, apartment units in Brooklyn of, of a potential oversupply to come, right? right? Already, uh, we're seeing a trend of um, rent prices um, actually declining slightly, which may reflect some of that oversupply happening. Where? This is the news <laughs> portion. In Brooklyn, it's happening. <laughs> Interesting housing prices or the cost of buying a home is still skyrocketing. Right. So there's a lot of forces at play. Um, but it is clear that, right, rent prices are still extremely, extremely high yeah. and, and, you know, to, to a point where it, this is a borough that's no longer affordable for many people. Yeah. We know that you also uh, cover transportation and infrastructure on your beat over at the lab. And I wondered, looking at the fights that's going on between our mayor and the governor and wrestling control of the MTA, if our infrastructure is keeping up whether the city is growing or our borough maybe shrinking just a little, how that goes into play with all this L train madness and just who's going to control our transit. Absolutely right. It's it's a big question with a lot of different dimensions. Um, I, I think that one thing that you know uh, you could take away from the MTA's various problems, right? The subway is just mm -hmm. facing these horrible delays all the yeah. time and breakdowns. Um, you know, the, the MTA has sort of repeatedly and perhaps a little problematically pointed to, well, you know, ridership has been increasing, right? We can't handle the number of New Yorkers who are trying to use our, our systems. So one, on one hand, you could sort of say, like, oh, yeah, big growth since 2010, right? The subway is being overtaxed. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, the sort of flip side, right, um, is that, you know, with 
overtaxed, um, you know, system, infrastructure yeah. system, you know, people are, are getting frustrated and, and looking for, potentially, for, for other places that are a little bit easier to live in. Okay, a little bit easier to live in. Uh, we've had young artists and creatives here who say, I can't afford to, I'm getting out of here, I'm going to Jersey or Detroit, there's retirees who are snowbirds or whatever. Where are people going? <laughs> right. If not Brooklyn, where? Where could they possibly be going? Right. Um, you know, so it's it's hard to know, you know, like on a on a neighborhood by neighborhood level, right? Mm -hmm. But we do know based on these census numbers and and from years past too, right? The the cities that are seeing uh, the most growth um, are those kind of bigger, hotter types of places, right? We know Dallas is is booming. Uh, Miami has seen seen pretty good growth. Las Vegas is another. Phoenix, uh, parts of Southern California, not LA though. And and I want to point out too, right? Uh, what's happening in New York? This yeah. this population slowdown is a trend. Um, LA is also seeing it, right? Even Chicago, as it's yeah. and and Chicago certainly too, right? And then that's a city that's also experiencing declines. Okay, so no declines here. We only want to increase numbers. So tell me about this newsletter that you guys are putting out over at City <laughs> Lab. It's your baby. You got the next thirty seconds. Yeah, I'm so glad you asked. Um, Map Lab is my bi-weekly newsletter about all things maps, so if you are similar to me and obsessed with all things wonky and demographic and, you know, you like to think about space and geography and where you live, um, yeah. this is really a, a newsletter for you. So it's, uh, yeah, go to citylab.com, click on newsletters, and you can sign up for it there. Well, we thank you for joining us today. Quick question, if you had to leave Brooklyn, your Bed-Stuy name. Where would you head to next? Oh, just a bigger apartment in Bed-Stuy. <laughs> She's it. not leaving, so her <laughs> apartment is not available. So, Laura Bliss, staff writer over at City Lab, we thank you for joining us on 112BK. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. It's a pleasure. All right. Well, tomorrow on 112BK, Jarrett Murphy of City Limits will get all political when he interviews Ross Barkin, candidate for state senate in Bay Ridge, and then gets the lowdown from reporter Dave Colon on the effort to unseat the IDC, the Independent Democratic Conference. And what's going on in the Nixon-Cuomo primary fight? Make sure to find yourself back here tomorrow. Bye now. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. It's also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Emily Bogosian, Naeem Van, Kritzi Roberts, Charmaine Lamb, and is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. Our show is recorded by Eric Hogsack, Antonio Rosario, Leslie Hayes, and Steve Desev. And our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias.